Welcome to another episode of the Chop Liver Podcast. I'm Elise. And I'm Amay, and today we're speaking to Jacqueline Flint, a writer, an editor, and um, facilitator in the arts in different forms. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, Jacqueline, just dive like straight into it. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you studied, and the different roles that you've played in the art world? Sure. So, uh, I studied primarily, my primary major was literature. Um, prior to that, I'd actually gone, I, I wanted to be a journalist. That was what I wanted to do. So I went to go and study journalism, but I got bored quite quickly. The other subjects that I was carrying right in the beginning were art history and um, English literature, and those interested me more, and so I pursued them instead. So I ended up graduating with that double, those twin subjects, and then pursued literature at postgrad. So that that's my yeah I, uh, yeah English mm-hmm. is what I studied, and then I guess my interest from the beginning right in the beginning was education and books and that hasn't really ever changed um, although the roles that I've played have been quite diverse and not specifically related to those things ever. Um, I I do think that's quite common though. I don't think anybody in the arts or very few people in the arts have very specific roles and those who say they do are (laughs) talking rubbish. so, yeah, I've played lots of different roles, but sort of come out in the end as a, as a kind of, as, as a writer um, and an editor, but via being a gallery manager and a bookstore person and a, and a designer and a, you know, Girl Friday of all, you know, kinds of <laughs> errand runner, you name it, um, bubble wrap collector, <laughs> shelf builder. Um, wow, that's a lot of, yeah. a lot of things, you know, a that, lot of different that, roles. <laughs> I mean, you know that from, work, well, you, from working in a gallery. You never, you arrive at work and you, you know, you're wearing yes. your nice shoes and by midday you're using the industrial vacuum cleaner to mm-hmm. get cobwebs out of the yeah. beams or whatever. You you're know. forced to wear many different hats and yeah. I think that's something that you learn quickly even in any kind of working in the arts industry. You're never just one thing. Mm-hmm. It's if you are, it's not going to work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so quite interesting. Um, our background or how we connected all to each other is that we all actually work at worked and work at David Crit, and mm-hmm. we like pointing it out because almost everyone—not everyone, but a lot of people who've worked in the arts have actually worked at David Crit, and that's quite a special connection that we all have because we've grown up in kind of the same similar industry. Um, and that's yeah, just a, a very nice connection to have. But I want to go back to your studying English and literature mm. and, and all of that. And, and that, I think, for many is a question mark. And one of the reasons, I think, why we wanted to have you on the podcast is that it's such a total chop liver um, association studying English like I can I also studied English and I even have people like what what are you what do you do with that like what is the function of studying English or language that you already know and I was wondering what your perspective is on that because we had a really interesting conversation on kind of the value of language and how having that background has enabled you to work as an editor or text or translator of, of images 
Well, translator, I think, is a very good word. Um, in, I used to try and explain to people what I do when they asked me, and I've stopped. I, n I now just use the word, those two words, some kind of translator or some kind of facilitator, mainly because that is that really is the crux of it. And I think that the benefit of having English literature in my background is that it, it teaches you. You see, the thing about language is that there's nothing of the world in it. You know, I can say tree and the image that you get and that you get and that I get and that every person who will be completely different because the word tree does nothing really to indicate what. So you've got to layer it a bit more. But even once you start layering it, you've got to get you've got to then distill it. So it's that it's it's a constant process of trying to work out which of the words hit the mark in storytelling but that it, it's the same for images and, and perhaps even more for images because images are completely different language mm -hmm. and they're also attached to a person who speaks a different language which is the artist and then when you bring them when you bring them out of the studio into some other context they've got to become attached to a whole bunch of other people that are also speaking different languages so it's about finding the balance between all those different languages in a way that does justice to all of them. And literature helps a person, I think, to do that because it's about figuring out the essence of a narrative. The language is neither here nor there, really. It's the narrative that wins in the end, um, the nuance of the narrative. And speaking about that narrative and using language to, like you said, with the tree, I mean, everyone's going to interpret it differently and kind of elaborate more on that. Kind of touching on art and speaking and writing about art, why do you think it's important that we write about art? Or more specifically, what is the importance when writing about art? Uh, again, I, I come back to translating as a, as a really important sort of foundation for, this, for that kind of work. Um, when I was studying literature, English, there was a, got to a point where I had to choose the, the next the sort of next course that I needed to take was um, it was a long course and it was dedicated only to the Victorians, you know, Dickens and, and, uh, and you know, I, yeah, I, you know, they're great and they're important, of course they are, but I personally don't really care much for, <laughs> for, for Bronte and I, I, I just, I just, I just, just never been my thing. So I, I had, to, there was another option, which was, um, it wasn't, it was a course outside of the English department I can't even remember which department, but it was outside of the English department. It was called Modern Fiction. And you could, if you were very diligent, take that course and it would count as a credit. And it just, that obviously is what I did without even thinking, because I don't, because I dislike the Victorians that much. But it was one of the best things I ever did because it was, what it was, very misleading in terms of what it was called. What it, what it was, was a, an entire course dedicated to English that had been translated from another language. So people like Italo Calvino, George Louis Borges, who, who have formed the foundation of uh, you know, my, my brain in some ways. Um, and what, it didn't strike me as so important then, but it has later, um, is that one of the sections of that course was dedicated to understanding that reading English in translation from another language is, it depends not only on the author having written a great piece of work, but in fact, even more so on the translator. Because you can read Borges translated by one person or another person and they can be completely completely different pieces of text you would you, you may not recognize them so 
the translator's job is to really understand the the essence of what the original language the person is writing in their original language and translating the, the guts of it the essence of it and it's the same with art you can look at a piece of work in any medium and you can pile as many fluffy words on top of your description it's not going to necessarily tell you anything about that piece of work but if you can really understand the artist if you can really understand the medium and you can really understand all those foundational things the, the composition texture use of color the way that a palette can affect you know you can you can move a tiny grade on one side or the other side of a, of a spectrum of a, of a hue and the whole meaning of, of a work can change if you can take all of that information and with economy um put it down into words suddenly that work is accessible to an enormous number of people more than if it's just the piece of work on its own so I think writing about art is essential because it, a good writer can really play a really important role in building that artist's career and do you think with like you mentioned it there where the writing helps elevate the work and makes it more understandable for a range of people do you think that it's important to kind of write in a way that the everyday person can understand about art because I think often in the way that we speak about art especially people who have studied it or um, kind of within the industry you speak about art in a certain way you use certain jargon you use certain words when you write do you write for the everyday person or is it more writing for the person within the industry that has that knowledge of art I think there's a balance I think it's important it's a very it's a lack of walking a tightrope that the answer to that question um, because it, it's essential there's nothing more irritating than reading a text about a show or, or a piece of work and it doesn't make and it doesn't make sense and it or it's or it's trying too hard to be overly clever or academic or mm. that that is that I find insanely irritating because it did not not only does it reduce the the artwork or the show that's it's exclusive in a way that's not helpful to anybody except maybe the writer and that is very irritating to me but at the same time you don't want to reduce the work in the in the other direction so like writing about Pebble Mukwena's work was was mm -hmm. interesting because he's he is an academic and his work is incredibly academic and so there are layers and layers and layers of academic jargon layered within the work itself um, mm -hmm. the text that he chooses to inlay in the actual prints are, is academic he's drawing on data sets mm -hmm. that are published by the GCR this is heavy very cerebral stuff and it's important to the work mm -hmm. um, it's not pretentious it, it, it plays a very important role in understanding you, you've got to kind of know that that's where he's coming from in order to really get the work but you also as a writer writing for the general public I you, I can't go off on a tangent about data sets and heat maps published by the G it doesn't make sense because mm -hmm. people are going to it's just going to go right over their heads and then you've lost yeah. so it's about finding a balance between being faithful to his intention and translating his intention in a way that that doesn't reduce mm -hmm. it And I think also, you know, writing about art, there are different forms of writing, of course, but writing about art and other things is very much about storytelling, which we speak often about, you know. So if you get all that fluff, all that academic fluff, it doesn't really tell the story of the work and that is your, it's going to carry that in-depth meaning and all those associations on its own. But if you're not able to tell a story to these various people, it's definitely not going to be successful. Just to, to add to that, when you're walking that tightrope, I feel like it's, 
quite a lot of pressure almost to kind of write it in such a way that you're not overfluffing it, you're not making it overly exclusive. I think that's something that probably just comes with experience and kind of knowing what works for art, what doesn't work for art. And I think it's it's still a difficult thing to write in a way for certain environments. Like you're going to write a specific way when you're writing an academic piece. You're going to write a certain way when you're writing for a newspaper. You're going to write a certain way when you're writing a press release for a gallery. And I think having to interchange that to your audience and writing for a specific audience is, I think, necessary to keep in mind all the time. Absolutely. Uh, that really, and also the different format. One of the things I find most often uh, being in an environment where there are a lot of young writers sort of trying their hand at different formats is that like to write a press release is very different to writing a review is very different to writing a full-length essay and the audience is essential um, in a gallery context you've got a particular audience um, I've written quite a bit for the lake uh, which is a very sort of um, th that's a that's a very specific subcultural audience if you want to call it that and that was a lot of fun because I really could allow my own voice to come through mm -hmm. I could use idioms that were more vernacular in order to get the point across so it I think the biggest thing for me has been um, removing myself re removing my own ego from the process because that I found in the beginning is that that can stand in because then you because then it's about my words um, which is not the, which is not the point at all mm -hmm. And I think often in the creative industry, we've spoken about that there's so much ego in it because you're actually trying to sell yourself and maybe that has got something to do um, in the way that the world perceives creatives or let's say in this instance also people who work in the humanities um, that you have to sell yourself so hard that you just like it actually gets in the way. It can very often get in the way. I mean, as an artist, you also have to kind of be humble but you also have to be like audacious you have to like go out there and sell yourself because if you're not going to believe in yourself no one else will and then if you're in the position of a facilitator you actually in the same position in wanting to assert yourself or having to build a career or have build respect build trust of people for you to be able to promote their work so it's quite a difficult thing and it's quite a big thing I think to say also to remove your your ego from it because at the same time I mean that comes a lot with like writers are not appreciated and you know many many texts that you've written it just appears on someone else's site for yeah. example it's not credited it happens a lot <laughs> those words those words have miraculously just jumped onto that page in that order and you know you're like what no this yeah. is not and, and how and you know you want to be that's mine i've facilitated that but you don't actually want to be that person yeah who's saying every me, now me, and me. again every now and again i am that person every now and again i am and i say i'm sorry i can and you know and that's usually when i've really enjoyed have um had to draw the words out and i've worked hard and and i've loved it then then i then i then i want to make sure that i you get the recognition. That, that it, from it. Yeah, it's 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 actually that, that I was about to say get recognized or get credited, but it's not actually about that. It's more about like it's more about that text being like my baby. <laughs> I don't want to just give I mean, my baby can, away to to be. It happens used. often. I mean, with writing, and I think that's what people sometimes. It takes a really long time to write like mm. a fully fleshed out piece yeah. of writing, and for it to be perfect. And you spend so much time with it. You've read every word hundreds mm. of times. 
and you get close to it. You're precious about it and you're almost protective about it. Yeah, that can happen. And that, and that when I do feel protective over it, then I, then I want to be credited for that text. M most of the time these days I don't. And I think that's why part of that, I think part of what makes me a good writer is my ability to remove my ego from the situation. But it's also part of the reason why I've never really sort of moved on an upward trajectory through the commercial gallery system as a curator or I love I love a, I love curating a show curating a show is such fun but I've never because it, it required me to be too much on the front like the front facing aspect I didn't I didn't love that the print workshop was always more comfortable to me because you get to really um, in a very real way uh, understand what people are doing and, and they're vulnerable um, and you're vulnerable, and that's a, it's more it's the the print workshop is more of that kind of a space. Whereas the gallery, I also f I also I, you know I also feel like at this well maybe now post COVID it, it it will probably change. And as hard as that is for everybody working in in the industry to navigate, it's quite exciting. Um, but prior to this whole shakeup, uh, the white cube there isn't much space for the artist in the white cube. It's a very mediated space, but not mm -hmm. by you know, there's no, there's not much space. Um, so hopefully that will change now. Mm -hmm. We've just mentioned it, but I want us to just, with you guys, just elaborate a little bit more on our thoughts on how jobs in humanities are perceived. And maybe just to shed a bit of light on what the world would look like, if what role it has played in history, and what the world would look like if these, these roles weren't filled. Mm. You know, because... The humanities include, let's say, okay, now we're speaking to you and you're a writer, but it, it's the history of the world. It's storytelling for many years before photography, all that history was documented in paintings, um, writings, documents, even maps to navigate the globe were done by people essentially crossing over, I suppose, from scientists to creatives. And yeah, I find that fascinating that we're still on the like lower economical scale and we were talking about, about it the other day and what does that mean? Like I don't, I'm, sometimes I just don't understand why we're there, why are we yeah. at the bottom of the food chain? I think, it, I think that, that that specific point is, is a symptom of a, of a growth economy because it's, it's, not the kind of, it's not the kind of activity that can be, uh, it's not reproducible in a way that can grow a GDP, for instance. It's not, it's not exponentially reproducible. Um, and when it is, then it loses its heart, and and so that's when. So I think that's that's possible. That's one reason why economically it's on the bottom bottom few rungs. Um, but it's it's essential. I mean, it's a really important because it's a, as a transform as a as a tool for social transformation. You can't really match it. It's the storytelling. I think you know. I saw an interesting thing on um, somewhere about the different roles that can be played in a in a in a time of change um, and of course and, and that's what we're in right now it's a time of crisis but it is a time of, of so much change and I think at the moment our focus is on frontline responders like who is on the front line of responding to this crisis but in the background and they are no less important are all the other the guides the healers but also the storytellers the myth makers the and for me, that that myth making, that storytelling, that is essential because it will m map the way forward by looking back and forward at the same time. And art does that. 
uh, all the time. That's what it is actually about as far as, you know, even somebody who's just doing life drawing is looking backwards and forwards at the same time and distilling that into a mark on a page. Or It's an essential part of the social fabric that if it wasn't there, I don't think we'd have much of a foundation. Mm-hmm. That's the interesting thing where you're saying like where the difference lies between that economic value where you have other industries where it's like, okay, I do this task, here's the exact equivalent to that task, and there is that exact direct output. Mm. But I think what people don't realize in, with the humanities, the output isn't immediate. That recognition isn't immediate. It is a long-term commitment in a sense, because those storytellers that are telling the stories of what's currently happening in the world now, their importance isn't seen because it's not relevant because you're currently in it. He's like, oh, I'm getting so much information already, but it's 20 years, even five years down the line. It's like, that's where the importance is. That history, that storytelling that plays such an important role. It's the same with artists. Sure, they're creating work now, but that value doesn't necessarily exist within its current economic place. Mm. But you'll see works, I mean, we've worked so much with William Kendridge, for example, and my favorite stories is the fact that his first uh, show is barely sold out. But that value wasn't didn't exist then, but now the value does exist. So I think it's very much going back to it's a long-term investment. Mm. That's what the humanities is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think that um, the network of creatives are like incredible in us creating its own kind of economic yeah. way of working and, and the way that we support each other in doing a small thing, you know, getting someone to read your paper or getting someone, you know, a friend to buy your artwork and probably because they like it, they'll never buy something that they don't like or even bartering, like exchanges and all of that. And I think that the community has been incredible in that kind of way and for years and years, like even a skill, if you can learn a skill and pay someone in a different way or, you know, be their shop assistant or be their whatever. I think that that's, you know, we just have created our own world as creatives which, you know, money does make the world go round, but it doesn't, you know, there are many other things that, that we can do. And I think that, that we're ripe. We, it, it, like the, it, the time is right and ripe mm. for that kind of picking now. Because I think about, you know, Rebecca Solnit writes a lot about um, this kind of mag- magnitude of the crisis that we're in at the moment is devastating in many ways. But it's also, it, there are also the seeds of hope sown in it because where there is major upheaval there is also um, opportunity for for very positive change because the institutions that we consider immovable she refers to pack ice uh, pack ice suddenly breaking up and suddenly what you thought was completely frozen up actually begins to move um, which makes me then think about that uh, Jerry Salt's writing about how, how excited he actually is to see this system that we currently exist in break down a little bit because it takes him back to the 70s where suddenly, you know, property suddenly, you know, you can rent a ground floor space for cheap and you don't need a gallerist to make you money to pay you. you it, it becomes a little bit more, so pe- maybe everybody's a little bit more broke, everybody's a bit traumatized, but <laughs> you can do things in a way that didn't seem possible six months ago, all of a sudden, because you have to be resourceful. Maybe creatives are like the best adapted to mm. that. For artists that aren't part of a commercial gallery standing, it's you've had to be innovative. You've had to be resourceful to kind of make it happen, get your work out of there, show people writing, show people poems. And now 
now that we're a part of this very strange economical system where people don't have the money or they have to come up with new ways to make a living, I think creatives have been training for it in a way because we're ready. We know how to do things that don't fall into the mainstream economic platform or a mainstream just way of thinking. Mm. I think I agree. Mm -hmm. Totally. And then the other day we spoke about, because um, you were in the system, you were in the nine to five, working, contributing, paying your tax, doing all that stuff. I'm not saying you're not paying your tax now, <laughs> but um, you spoke about a big shift that had happened in your kind of stepping out of that regular, like kind of what is perceived as normal, mm. you know, normative. I don't know if what is the right word. And I wanted to ask like how your perspective has shifted in the way that you nav navigate the world now because now you're a freelancer you do different types of jobs um could you tell us a bit more about that i like to think of it as the hegemon you know <laughs> and it's a massive like it's, it's very scary that the, when you're in a, a stable job and it brings in an x amount of money every month you always think that you're going to have time for other stuff. And, and you, you do, you know, but you also don't. Comes at a cost, that big one down the line. You never know it then, only later. But I, it, it, I, I have moved. It's taken a couple of years, but it, it did go. It, there were a couple of key moments where I had to choose. Um, and the first one was choosing to, choosing to leave David's organization. That was in 2016, I think. Yeah. Choosing to leave and not knowing what to do next. And then after a couple of weeks being presented with two options, one of which was to go and, in terms of the conventional upward trajectory, it was to go and then work at a big commercial gallery for it was a nice fat salary. Um, and in terms of, you know, the next step to my world domination kind of situation it, it, that was the obvious choice but it just whenever I closed my eyes and thought about doing that it made me very very stressed I, I, I couldn't I couldn't get my head around the impact that it would have like on my bones if that makes sense like deep in me it doesn't make sense and so the other option was to go and work for a, a print workshop independent smaller scale and I knew that in making, and that's that's obviously what I did. Um, and I knew at the time that in a way it was a stepping, it was a stepping away from that like success thing. Um, and it was one of the, it, that began me on a process of stepping down. Step well, I mean I'm using my fingers to make quotation marks because down, in fact, has been it's the best thing that I ever did. Choosing to begin distancing myself from that obligation to succeed that obligation to but it's also an obligation to stability that if you're not stable if you don't have a stable income that you're not succeeding in some way and that's not true it's releasing myself from that and understanding that it's there are other ways to make things work has allowed me to do a lot of very very interesting things um there's a freedom in that, even though, you know, sometimes you can't pay your rent. <laughs> You've got to figure that out. That's but okay. there's always a way you can trade your rent for some, you know, you, you, there are ways of figuring things out. Eh? But you don't know that until you're, until you're faced with that reality. Um, you can't, the, the next massive uh, sort of, and it wasn't a decision I'd made. It was, it just happened. I was retrenched at the end of 2018. 
And that was the best thing. That was the best thing because it forced me out completely. <laughs> it completely forced me out fast. I had to just now. And then we came to Joburg and that was, you know, and so I, I did, I do, I have the last couple of months had to go through a bit of an existential recalibration because I did feel like I was just getting onto my feet again. Um, and then this COVID thing kind of literally <laughs> pulled the rug out from under my feet. And I, But even that, I've sort of come to understand that I was falling into those same traps. I was falling into that same trap of like, okay, well, I'll do this and it is important to me, but it's also stable. So I'll do it and it will allow me to do these other things. It doesn't always work like that. And yeah, it's, it's important to like it sometimes it's not about having courage it's just about these things happening and then you find that you do have the courage that you didn't think you did have you know and then you do cool shit with that yeah. <laughs> newfound freedom yeah. cool <laughs> shit rules yeah. Yeah. it's like when you you've escaped the rat race of yeah. it all you know and it's finding okay what is actually important where do my priorities lie and sometimes when like you said the rug gets thrown out of you it's you find new ways and you find ways to make that work and it lands up working in your favor yeah and you know as a as a um like as a woman it's also been interesting because you have sort of been very committed to ex- like extreme independence which that also has come as come at a cost you know and independence being never ever asking for any help ever that's not it's not healthy like sometimes the best thing you can do is ask for help and even if it feels at the time like you are failing at being independent you're not actually you you know a few months later you think oh what a joy now they have all of this freedom that i didn't have before just because i said can you help me and mm-hmm. it's powerful yeah and you're just not in that system of where it's kind of like put before you that that's what has to happen or you yeah. can't ask or you you know you can't do anything mm. and but i just want to say one thing about mm. what you were saying and i think that it's so relevant in this time because so many people are losing their jobs yeah. at this time and everyone's livelihood in, in a sense is um compromised by this pandemic and many people will have or will lose their jobs and i think what you're saying in terms of retrenchment being the best thing that ever happened to you if that can be just one message for people yeah in terms of don't be terrified by it. See it as an opportunity because it is, there are real things that need to happen. There are real, real bills that need to be paid. Mm-hmm. But um, being creative or being putting yourself out there and thinking in a different way, I think is, is just so encouraging. And I think that it's fantastic that you've actually been through that. I mean, I have been very lucky not to have gone through that. And I know, Elise, you're still good there at um, Vessel's Place. But um, for many other people, it's a real thing. And it yeah. could become our realities as well. You just don't know. So I think that that's why. Thank you for saying that. And yeah. thank you for putting it out there. Because I think that it's just, people have to know that everything that happens to you is an opportunity for you to go and do something about it. Yeah, and it's also, I think for me, a big shift has also come in, in understanding the different, like, you know, we want to be self-sufficient. You want to be, it's that independence thing. But there's, a, self-sufficiency is not ideal for many reasons. And when you can understand, so for me, a big part of this process, um, firstly, I must say that I've, I've been very fortunate to be held um, by my partner his income has remained relatively stable for now and that's been a great blessing because it's meant that we haven't we haven't had to deal with too much of that kind of disruption on his side even though my over the years my the last two years my you know this is just another another wave of that stuff for me um 
But aside from him, it's also about accessing my community. It's about community sufficiency as opposed to self-sufficiency. That is key. Um, and not just, I mean, and in the arts, of course, because that is, it's most possible, like you pointed out, Elise, because we're already used to being resourceful in, in, in interesting ways. Um, so community sufficiency is not that much of a stretch for creatives, but even in terms of like every man on the street, like there, there are resources out there. We just have to get away from the total dictatorship of monetary contribution being the only way. There are so many ways. Um, you know. It's trying to escape the loop of that, mm. which I think has been the most difficult because we're so used to our system working in a certain way. Mm. And, we were, and when that blip happens, it kind of doesn't work anymore. And it's trying to adapt to that. Like if anything, is just adapting to it and taking the next step forward. A lot of people's mindsets are at the moment of those things happening and not knowing where to turn. Yeah. Back to what you said, it's you have your community. Get in touch with your community. Don't be afraid to ask for help. You want no. that independence, but more likely than not, your community is there to help you, yeah. however big or small it is. And also start start applying the design processes that you use in your job to your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're learning these things for a reason. <laughs> they you are can, applicable. Yeah, and it's, you're not going to get arrested if you use skills mm. that you've acquired in your actual job yeah. to, uh, you know, to your life. It's safe. Mm. So with, I mean, world's crazy at the moment, but we can like trail it back to just writing and creativity and all those fun things. And what has been the most rewarding thing for you, being a writer and an editor or just a facilitator in the arts? And also what's kind of been the most challenging within that? The, the, the writing and the editing, I think it's easier for me to talk about the facilitating um, because it, that's really, because I mean, you know, I function in the arts and then I function in various other arenas that are not really on this, on, at face value. They have nothing to do with the arts. But as I go along, I understand the connection between my interest in children, my interest in permaculture, my interest in alternative wellness practices, etc. And the arts is it's that facilitating processes for people. It's uh, watching to see what happens when you introduce something unusual into the mix of a context and then holding the space for whatever comes out. Um, that, that's been the most rewarding, is, is learning how to hold space for people, learning how to hold space, even for processes. I mean, in the print workshop, you do a lot of, you, as printmakers, you know, you do a lot of holding space. Like, you hold space for ferric chloride. You hold the space mm -hmm. and you wait. Like, you can't push it to do anything other than what it's doing. You don't always know what it's going to do and you have to hold the space for that. Um, so that's been the most rewarding. The, mo the most challenging, I think, was the process of removing myself. That, over the years, has been the most challenging part because you're constantly being pushed to do the opposite or I've constantly felt a pressure to do the opposite and, for whatever reason, consistently resisted that. And now, you know, nobody... It's very difficult to remove oneself altogether from things, but um, I, do, I do find that when I'm able to do that, things are more rewarding, especially in the arts, because it is there are so many big egos. Mm -hmm. um, I find it much better to be able to hold space for those for that than to try and assert my own. It doesn't feed me. 
but it, but it was a challenge. I remember first feeling very disillusioned in 20, I think it was, I mean, I think it was 2011. I remember specifically the show I was working on was, I mean, it's a great show. It's actually so relevant in this time as well. Um, it was a, f- a show of a photographer, fabulous photographer, Carla Leeshing. And um, it was a solo show, so I'd curated it with her. It had an installation aspect. It had a catalogue that we'd put together. It was beautiful. But I remember feeling, at moments, so disillusioned because I'd worked so hard. I'd poured so much of myself, my, my own self, into this thing, into this show. And in the end, it wasn't, it, I wasn't present, really. It was about Carla, which I, that, of course, it was about the artist, but it was also about... It was about the gallery. It was about the the other writers that were going to come in to review for certain publications. And I felt like I'd sort of put my put, put everything in. And then where was I? And at that time, I was like, "This, what is this?" Now that's quite that's the best place for me to be. I quite like to say there it all is. And I don't. It wasn't me. I you know. But it, but this is this beautiful thing. But I remember. That, I mean. So that's quite a long time ago. It's taken a long. It took a long time for me to understand that. For me, it's it needed. I needed to step back, consistently resist the urge to play to put my stamp. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think Rup, just what you're saying is makes you such a perfect chop liver, <laughs> creative or associate of ours because I think that we've definitely experienced that. And it's it's not actually being about you. It's just as you're saying, really breaking your back and putting your whole life into it. You're depriving yourself of sleep. You're depriving yourself of the things that actually nurture and heal you and um we've experienced that very much so it's i don't know if it is about it's if it's exhibitions or because it's such a maybe it's not only exhibitions but let's just focus on that for one second is that the construction exhibition making is so intense Mm. it is so intense and it takes so much work it's project management but in like such a personal level it's like project managing a relationship with this artist and the expectation, what it means to them, what it means to you. It can't actually mean that much to you. You have to like take this back step. And I, I'm also like that. I'm happy to not be the person introducing mm. the show, whatever. It's not about me. It's about the artist. But the things that you have to deal with while putting up this thing is just, it's like really giving birth to a child as well. Yeah, I think anybody who works behind the scenes in the art um, needs to add like therapist also onto there because you do, you, you, and it's physical. Not many people understand how physical, how physically demanding it is because you're drilling and you're painting and you're lifting and you're holding things at weird angles above your head and you're becoming a contortionist in order to set the sculpture up and then it doesn't work and then it's three in the morning and oh well we'll just it's it's physically very demanding exhibition making is incredibly demanding on on, on every level i think a lot of people don't realize that when they walk into the opening event they got their wine they've got their cheese and their crackers and the um you had cheese and crackers i know sometimes hey really but um (laughs) What they don't realize is that they see this beautiful exhibition. They see the artworks up. They see the artists looking glowing. But they don't see the exhibition makers that still have white paints on their hands. Mm. They've just managed to fix their makeup, fix yeah. their hair. Put their they nice just shoes put on, on their nice, nice shoes yeah. on, exactly. Put the mm. dress on and you put on the show. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. But it's also we keep it behind the scenes. Mm. Because you just, you don't, you're not going to stand there at the exhibition opening with your shoes full of paints and your apron on and your hair all messy, you 
No, well also because then how are you going to sell it? That's the yeah. other thing. That's another whole like level of, of expectation. Yeah, it's interesting because in a workshop that would be 100% appealing. Mm. But in mm. a gallery situation, if you don't dare show how much back went into it. And I think that's part of the issue of the white cube. But it's so mm. pristine and it's yeah. really, I mean, it's great that it's for the viewer and it's all ready for them. Basically. Is it for the viewer though? That's why, mm. is it? I don't know. I mean, it's for... Who is it it's for? I think we're just so used to that presentation. We're mm. so used to, and I mean, even when I was studying uh, curatorship, the presentation is beautiful white walls. You have your beautiful label. You have your artwork up. You have all of this pristine aesthetic mm. for the artwork. We're just so used to that being the the norm. That has to, and now we're forcing to change it quite drastically, oh. but in a way that we're still preserving a pristine aesthetic we're still sh not showing the the background mm. and i'm not sure when that's going to become acceptable for the i think it's just a matter of i think it's just a matter of communities refusing to exist in that sterile because it is it's it, there's no uh, there's no heart there's no heart in it life is not pristine by any stretch of the imagination mm. and art making is about life so to remove all the mess and the guts and the gore and the even if it's not that gutsy or not that gory, it's still not pristine. There's um, still a lot of blood, sweat, and tears mm. that goes into it, or or laughter, or you know, and there's no space for for any of that in, in a traditional white cube space. Um, and I'm not sure what. I mean, it feels often to me very much like a it's a control mechanism. Because it's much easier to control that. It's easier to control responses, control um, presentations. Um, but it doesn't, yeah, again, it doesn't, there's no space for the artist. There's space for the curator. But, but the curator as artist is, mm, I'm not convinced. Yeah, yeah I'm I not agree. convinced. Look, we're not hating on galleries or curators or no. anything like that. But I think that it's a good question. And, and for me personally, I've always wanted to do like proper showcase where we tried to do once with Red Martin, a showcase of workshop, like mm. if the gallery would become his workshop and he'd be working there in his studio, which I acknowledge is also very difficult because getting used to a new space, like you actually break in a space, you know, and, but always wanted to do a show where half of the gallery at least is like the studio vibe um, with these the cloths that they put at the back of the paintings with all the splatter on it or a little couch or a little plant or something. But it just seems too lifestyle for a lot of people. When we've discussed the ideas for whatever reason, it just never happens like that. And even the process of working with artists, it just never translates mm -hmm. into that. And I find that it's a, you know, it's not saying this one thing is bad or, you know, even no. the white cube, it's, it's all the conditioning that comes along with it. And I just, it, it would be fascinating to see a show, to do a show like that one day. In, and we can do it in our own space or whatever, but in you know established environments, it it does mm. become very difficult. I think it's also about um, again, it's it's what's exciting about this major disruption is that I think part of the problem. It's not that there's anything wrong with the white cube. It's just that white cube has come to dominate the landscape. There isn't anything else, and whatever else is trying to get off the ground. It's, it's difficult because... It's the, always then seen as a lesser to the white Yes, cube. which I think is what will change now. 
because those, I mean, just just for economic reasons, aside from anything else, the overheads of a white cube space are way more than whatever an artist collective is going to do or one of those more sort of grassroots, ground-level type um, projects. So there is space for the white cube in the same way that there's space for a museum in the same way. But that's the point. There's got to be diversity because diversity, nothing can exist in a monocultural situation because then that's the, there's only space for that. Everything else then get strangled a little bit. There's got to be diversity, and I think that's what will happen now, just by, by necessity, but it's, for me, that's very exciting. Yeah, I think it's just creating, like you said, there's, there is a space for the white cube, there's a space for the museum setting, mm. and I think that there just has to be that almost level playing field mm. where that grassroots um, showcasing exists on the same level and has the same value as that huge white cube exhibition and that opening, and I think it's having people respond to them in the same way with the same amount of attention and allowing access to collectors because that's the other thing that 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 there's no there's no space for the artist you know years gone by there there was the, the dealer one of the roles of the dealer which i find a very interesting role actually but one of their roles was not, was not only it's to sell the work but um, it's to sell the work by creating a relationship, establishing, facilitating a relationship between the artist and the patron or the collector. And by doing that, you then establish a long-term investment situation because the, art, the collector cares about that artist. Whereas with a gallery or the white cube, there's no space for that. There's a massive wall between the artist and the collector. Yeah, so mediated. Mm. Um, and I think that's where it has come about that independent artists are, and in this time as well, with digital or interactions on digital platforms, artists are engaging directly yeah. with people purchasing their work. And even in a sense, like I know many artists have done commissions and you know, it's an instruction from a collector and they often, they collaborate. They're collaborating on that piece. And I, it's obviously not for uh, the established practice necessarily, but it's brought another dimension into that engagement, which had to happen because of what we're going through, but which doesn't happen necessarily or hasn't previously often happened in a gallery. So that mediation gets cut out, mm. which is fascinating to see what effect it's going to have on artworks and artists' practices not only in making, but the role that they play with their collectors. And we do know that collectors always want to go and meet the artist and stuff. So it's quite exciting that, that that's happening. It will, it, will, yeah, it will be fascinating to see what happens with the gallery because the gallery will have to reimagine itself yeah. and fit in with that, which is great because it's in service. It's supposed to be in service of artists and in service of creatives. And although it does enable many, many people to work in the arts that are maybe not artists, a shift in it will not be the worst mm -mm. of it. I think the, the quality, or not equality, I mean, the world will never be equal in my perspective, but the avenues that get opened up in that situation is fascinating. I want to see that. It might also it would do, the, what would be really wonderful is for there to be a possibility for collectors also to begin to understand because that mediation the, the disconnect between the collector and the and the artist has also had the effect of preventing collectors from understanding what exactly they are investing in because you know investing on the secondary market is very different to investing in contemporary art um, when you're investing on the primary market in, in in the work of a contemporary artist you're not investing in the, in the work that's actually been made you're not investing in that product yeah. But when you disconnect the, the collector from the artist, there's this temptation to sell the product. What you're actually selling is that artist's capacity to have 
a positive effect on the development of the culture in which they are functioning. And if collectors can begin to understand that again, it will be good for everybody, including the gallery. So that, that it will be nice to see what happens now as a result of this um, shake-up. From my personal experience, like dealing with uh, collectors that I have, is that you'll get feedback when you're approaching a gallery and you're showing it. You get a very certain feedback, and I think it's some kind of a, a colder feedback. Mm. And you're not really, you'll say, okay, no, these clients came in, they looked at your work, they really liked it, but you always want to hear more. You're like, what did they really think about the work? As an artist, you don't get those conversations necessarily through a gallery, from my experience. You're getting that from someone literally messaging me on Instagram, wanting to know more. And I've even had the experience of someone buying my work from a gallery and then personally contact me to find out more. Mm. They want that artist engagement, that connection that I'm getting from people, even if they're not necessarily buying the work. They just want to hear your story. And in fact, that collector then becomes a patron. So it might revive the idea of patronage, which has been pretty much dead for a long time in that personal way. You know, like the Gertrude Steins who would, mm. you know, collect Picasso by Picasso's work even if she hated it just to allow the next body of work to emerge to see what would happen you know what you're saying about personal connection for me is like so essential it's so essential in this time when we don't have access don't have a lot of access to connecting with people personally like face to face obviously it happens online and so on but um I want to talk about the value of collaboration because it can be a lonely road in the arts, either as an artist or in many of the things that you do as well. And maybe if we just touch on the value of, of collaboration for a second. I, I think that collaboration is basically the most kiff thing. Like you can't, I don't, I'm like what is the point of doing anything without input from, because you, to collaborate requires an enormous amount of sensitivity from everybody involved in order to make it work. And so emotionally, that's a pretty good place to start, to know that you, you're going to come up against different perspectives and you're going to have to make them work in order for the, for the project to work is a, good, um, is a good way to go about anything, I suppose. But um, I think the, the other great benefit of collaborating is that you are engaged then in a, a kind of process-driven research. It's design-led research because you don't know what the outcome is going to be you can you can as a group or even if it's a collaboration between two people you can as a, as a set of collaborators establish you can set your intentions but what ends up coming out in the end you don't you can't know um, and if you do think you know then you're getting it wrong mm -hmm. and there's a there's there's enormous amount of value it's a very fertile collaboration immediately makes the ground that you're working in fertile for innovation so I, I feel very privileged that my career if that's the right word I don't it's a very strange word to me my my activities my acti yeah my like existence in the world has been f founded on some on collaboration in one way or another always um I can't really think of another way of working because what well not what's the point I mean of course you know individual people can achieve great things on their own but collaboration just brings in dimensions to any project that that make it so much better <laughs> for all those reasons you know and and it's the process it's the process because it's always the process you of course you might end up with a show or a print or a 
even if it's a, you, you might end up with a final product, but the process, it's been informed by a process, um, which means it's fl there's flexibility built in, there's resourcefulness built in. And it's such a rewarding process. Mm. I mean, I've always loved working in collaboration because you're bringing an individual skill set and knowledge and a group or another individual's knowledge and skill sets together and it just becomes this like power team of creating something really incredible. Like you said, it might not be that final product, but through that process that's so rewarding, you are learning so much, not only about yourself and kind of how you're working with other people, but you're just learning all these new skills and ways of seeing the world that I think is just so incredible and just fun to do. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also for me a process of revival. If there's one thing that kind of needs a little bit of attention, and pair that up with something else, and you know, then you've got something completely new. And I've noticed a lot of uh, musicians have been doing that collaborative songs and so on in this day and age, like what's new in the music industry. But um, as soon as two creatives come together, but where something can be combined, something that maybe was lesser. Um, or considered less and not necessarily was but then combined with something else and how it kind of revives and, and show, shows people like to see it in a new light I love that about that quality about collaboration um, for me is quite quite beautiful it's a beautiful thing yeah. also from like you know in terms of like social development that social transformation thing collaboration is important because it gives everybody opportunities to navigate everyday democracy you know how do you how how do we each take our individual inputs into consideration all the time um without one dominating the other how, how do we navigate all of that stuff um and of course then each learning process facilitates the next learning process and the next and so one collaboration will form the next um whether it's the same people or not is irrelevant each collaborator learns more by virtue of being plugged into a group than, than they would necessarily on their own. And I think it helps an individual's process as well. Like you're saying, you're, you can so easily just work in isolation. You can so easily just become very inward to it. And there comes a point where that system of working just doesn't work anymore because it just becomes this endless cycle, repeating the same process over and over again. But when you're collaborating, you're introduced to a lot more ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. And you might agree with it, you might not, but it allows you to ask questions. It allows you to learn. It's something that a lot more creatives should embrace. I think it's also the vulnerability. I mean, that's what the, the, my absolute favorite thing about being involved in having had the privilege of being involved in print workshops um, for so long is that you, and you see uh, so many examples of this that I've that you you can that I've watched unfold. An artist will come in. Often it's a painter. They're used to working on their own in their studio. That they make a mark. They see the mark only, and only when they are ready to show other people, then other eyes will you know see that mark. Print workshops are completely different. You are working in an environment where you are exposed. You are making marks. You have no idea what they're going to look like. You have to rely on the skills of other people in order to achieve the, the mark you want. And so that already is massively, people are out of their comfort zones. And then a lot of the time you can see the terror, <laughs> like the unadulterated terror. And then that print gets, that proof gets pulled off the press and the artist is looking at it at the same time as everybody else for, for the first time. Well, the, the artist is very vulnerable, but most of the time that uh, experience 
that collaborative experimental process will crack open areas in their practice that would never have been cracked open if they had just stayed in their studio. Mm -hmm. And had all that control. That's mm -hmm. what I love about printmaking is that kind of su the surprise of the mark mm -hmm. that comes through the press. Like you mm -hmm. could never have imagined, you can't imagine what it's going to look mm -hmm. like. Well, you could, but what it actually looks like is that element of surprise is so refreshing and is the best thing, I think, mm. for like creative block. But yeah, wow, that's such a powerful moment when that paper comes off the plate. Yeah. Even though the artists, especially when we're looking at like the print workshop environment, and I think it kind of leads into collaboration in general, you are vulnerable because you're kind of dealing with something with a group of people, but I think you're vulnerable, but you're in an environment that's fully supportive. And they're too vulnerable because they're not really sure. I mean, with a print workshop, as much as you understand the process and you're an expert in it, when you pull that thing from the press, it, you never actually know exactly how it's going to come out. I think it's a scary process, but you're in a supportive environment. Well, you're all, it's that holding space thing. Like you're all facilitating the process for each other. You're holding the space. Everybody's holding the space for each other. That's the only way it can work. I mean, we've really delved into so much about what you do, the different hats that you wear um, within your career environment. Um, but outside of that, what do you do for fun? Fun. Um, I, d I don't often use that word. I do use the word joy a lot. Like there are things that bring me joy. They're not always fun, um, though. Um, what do I do for fun? I, I spend a lot of time in the garden. I spend a lot of time with children. I seek out experiences with children, partly because I have my own children um and so they necessitate me finding environments with ch other children in them um but also because i you know the combination of children and gardening actually is a, is a very interesting one because especially at this time where we have to kind of really reconsider what you know martin Sh there's a guy called martin shaw he's 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 kind of amazing he's i, I hear i worship him a little bit he's um <laughs> he's a mythologist i mean what kind of a job is that who is totally a myth cool. I mean a mythologist. Totally cool so Martin Shaw is a mythologist and he's, you know, he just knows a lot of stuff about all the old stories. And he uses this information and this knowledge to kind of help. His work has helped me a lot during this time because he talks about existing in a mythical space, like in a mythological space, understanding the power of um, narrative and so on. And, uh, of course, a lot of mythology comes from some sense of an elder community you know these things that are passed down and 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 i think part of our big problem <laughs> part of why this is so difficult for us is that we've really come to understand how disconnected we are from previous knowledge systems knowledge systems that we might have had access to as a community as communities 200 years ago we just don't anymore and so now we're trying to navigate our way into a future that we are uncertain of um without any access to how they did it before and so children are fascinating to me because they have this mythical way of existing in the world they speak in these mythical tones and they have this vast imagination that allows them a resilience that we don't as adults have and I feel that in a time when we are trying to map ways forward in the absence of elders the children will lead the way and so I've been watching carefully my own children and in the garden because that's where I, that, that's what brings me joy. Um, and it is, it's fascinating to, to see how, how quickly they understand design, how quickly they understand how to research something like scientists and creatives and artists all at the same time, how they use drawing to 
record their thoughts and how they'll turn it then into a song as a way to it's 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 remarkable so that that at the moment is bringing me a lot of joy I'm I feel very very fortunate I'm immensely grateful that I am in a position where I can actually just surrender and immerse myself in the garden and and, and with the children it's hard of course I sometimes I mean I you know sometimes I've been on the phone to you and had lots of screaming all around me like it's very it's very visceral I lose my temper a lot but you know we always figure yeah so that that at the moment is what I do for for joy um fun fun I'm not sure yeah I'll, 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 I'll look the word up and get back to you. That's okay. We're all figuring it out. We've got some time now. <laughs> but thank you. Thanks so much for chatting to us. And I've really enjoyed everything that you've had to say. Um, learned a lot. And we've had a lot of the conversations as well. But it's, it's awesome to have three creative people kind of just sharing an exchange of ideas. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank it's you. so wonderful. Wonderful to be here. It's always a soul-nourishing thing to have conversations like this. Thank you. Cool. And to round it up, we have, of course, our doodle challenge. Mm. Doodle challenge. Um, and Jacqueline, what would you like the topic of this episode's doodle challenge to be? How, how, how does your garden grow? Mm. I like it. It's a good prompt. So please send in all your doodles photos whatever springs to mind um about what makes your garden grow i like that i like that so much and then send it to us on instagram at chop liver society you can send it to us on email info at chop liver society.com and we mustn't forget our wonderful prize for this episode we have a prize we have a prize that's amazing yeah uh for this uh episode it's going to be our notebook pack um for any doodlers, writers, and hopefully that brings you some inspiration. Inspiration to fill them with whatever brings you joy. Um, but I think that's then everything for today. Thank you again, Jacqueline. We really appreciate having you here. Um, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Bye. 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 For more information on the platform, visit our website choppedliversociety.com and like us on Facebook and Instagram and bring your friends. And this podcast was produced by Jonathan Bell at Bell Studios in Johannesburg.